Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're kicking off our Hughes Brothers series with 1993's Menace to Society. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter or Facebook at The Next Reel. Uh, and we got a blot spot for the show. Ben Lott has written in with his uh, rebound on, uh, oh, geez, the emigrants. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he liked it very much. My apologies to whoever picked this film, but I was dreadfully bored by it. I've seen plenty of movies about people leaving their homeland to come to the new world, and this one didn't do anything new or original. The story dragged and lacked focus, and the dubbing was so strange, particularly when they started to interact with people speaking English, a film that was totally not for me. Your rank 257, my rank 270. Those rankings are, are fairly close, but I think ours has a lot more love going on. With yeah, it. it's definitely got some more heart. Although I, I think it's funny that he actually watched the uh, the dubbed version that uh, like me as well. Yeah, I yeah, know it was terrible. It was terrible. That's aged poorly on me. Just the experience of it. So I, I certainly can relate to uh, to Ben's issue. Uh, anyhow, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. <laughs> I'm going to go first because I got the zombie trailer and yeah, yeah, I had to grab it because I saw it. I'm like, oh, this looks fun. And yeah, I wanted no, to make yeah. sure that that you didn't get to pick it because you totally know, got dibs. I know if you saw it first, you totally would have <laughs> <laughs> you and your zombie fetish. That's right. I don't, I don't like horror movies, but check out the zombies. Oh, God, I love zombie <laughs> movies. Why is that? Oh, it's so dark. OK, go on. Uh, Tell me all about this, it. This is here alone. This is a movie directed by Rod Blackhurst that uh, it was actually a 2016 film, but it's uh, getting released uh, soon. This is a, a film about a, a young woman who struggles to survive on her own in the wake of a mysterious epidemic that has decimated society and forced her deep into the unforgiving wilderness. Lucy Walters plays the uh, the protagonist, and it looks just it looks really interesting. I'm very curious about uh, kind of the the vibe of this film because it it feels very much like it's a little bit of the road. It's a little bit of 28 days later. Like, is this a zombie epidemic? Is it just some strange disease that has kind of uh, made everybody kind of go crazy and feast on flesh? Um, and here she is like, you know, creating her own little military rituals, covering herself in mud and everything to sneak into places and try finding food before, uh, all the, the, um, the hordes, uh, track her and find her. And then she runs into some, uh, some people and it's like, you know, now it's, it's the whole walking dead sort of thing, right? Do you trust these people? Do you not? Oh yeah. And it's got this great vibe, a really kind of creepy feel to it and everything. And I, I don't know. I really enjoyed the tone of the trailer. Shane West pops up as uh, I guess it would be her husband before he must uh, at some point mysteriously die. Um, I, I don't know. I really enjoyed the trailer. What do you think? No, oh, I'm right with you. I thought it was great. I And I don't even know. Like, I, I actually, I felt like the trailer wasn't really put together all that all that well. Like, I, I don't feel like I got, uh, like, if I step back and look critically at it, it it's a little bit haphazard. And uh, so I, I don't feel like there's much of a thread to get there. It feels a lot like The Bride from last week to me, although it doesn't come in at almost <laughs> five minutes. Uh, and so there may be multiple stories in here, but I give it such a pass because it's zombie stories. It could be a, a you know it could be like creep show for all i care and it's just story after story of zombies and i'm totally in i'm i'm I, totally in 
I knew that would happen. I I knew I'd have a winner this week. You got a total winner. Yeah, no. (laughs) Hook, line, sinker, dead flesh. The whole nine yards. Awesome. Well, this is going to have a limited release uh, March 31st. It's... I think it just finished up its its uh, festival run um, just this past uh, February, and so now it's time to uh, have limited theatrical before we'll all be able to probably watch it streaming. Okay, my trailer, Andy. You know, I picked this for a couple of reasons, but the biggest one is that we were just talking about our uh, our mutual uh, connection to Terrence Malick last week. Yes, and so. I picked Terrence Malick's new film. Uh, This is Song to Song. Uh, It tells the story of, uh, well, on IMDb, two intersecting love triangles, obsession and betrayal set against the music scene in Austin, Texas. And that's the second reason I picked it, because I'm a sucker for the music scene in Austin, Texas. I love music movies, and so uh, I, I will see this as a result of the musicality of it, and the cast, the cast looks really good. Haley Bennett, who uh, uh, we most recently saw in um, Girl on the Train, which I thought she was she was terrific, and what a bananas movie that was. Uh, and uh, Ryan Gosling, and Natalie Portman, and Rooney Mara, and Michael Fassbender, the Fass, Christian Bale, are you kidding? Kate Blanchett, Benicio del Toro, Andy Val Kilmer is in this movie. Val Kilmer uh, and Holly Hunter. So I I don't even know I, I don't even know what to what to make of that. People are lining up to be in movies with this guy. Why we don't connect so well to his movies, I don't know. But I'm gonna give it another shot. I'm gonna continue closing my head in the car door because of the music and the cast. Am I a fool? It's you know I struggle right there with you. Terrence Malick, you, I mean, like you said, we did discuss this last week. Uh, his films can be very, very frustrating to watch. Um, this looks like it um, It might be a little bit more. I mean, it's it's love triangles. It's kind of, uh, you know, kind of a, a drama romance sort of thing. It might be his take on kind of a, you know, I, I don't want to say romantic comedy, but romantic drama, certainly. Um, could it work? (laughs) I don't know. That's like the punchline to a terrible joke. It's like the Terrence Malick romantic comedy. That's (laughs) the worst thing ever. (laughs) It probably is his version of a romantic comedy. (laughs) Oh, you know, just throw some music in it and then then laugh. (laughs) I I really don't know. Um, I'm curious about it. I, I rarely race out to see a Terrence Malick film. Um, this one probably won't be at the top of my charts, but I will say there's a little tie to tonight's movie because Clifton Collins Jr. pops up in it, and he actually has a a very bit part in our movie tonight. So, uh, and and I didn't mention also Callie Hernandez is in uh, is in Song to Song, and she's in the trailer. I the movie for the the trailer I really wanted to do, which as we record this because of my weird travel schedule, it's. When you hear this is is been time shifted dramatically, but this second Alien Covenant trailer dropped just like an hour and a half ago, and I really wanted to talk about that, uh, but I think we've already talked about it. Yes, the movie, so I'm not going to. But she's in that movie, <laughs> and so I, you know, bonus trailer. Very big of you. Uh, very any, big anyhow, of you. Very. <laughs> Well, I've been known for my grandiosity. Uh, this <laughs> opens in the uh, in the U.S. of A. at South by Southwest, March 10th. Uh, and so by the time you're hearing this, it probably has already uh, opened, maybe. 
Not even sure. Uh, we will see it. Wide release March 17th. Line up, you Malik heads. <laughs> March 17th. Okay. Andy, what'd you say about my mama? So what are you going to do, KD? You going to mess around out there in the streets till you get killed? What's that, sir? You got to think about your life. Being a black man in America isn't easy. All I'm saying is survive. You need to be glad that you graduated from high school and that you're alive at 18. And you need to do something with yourself before you end up like he did. I'm not going to end up like he did, all right? Oh, man, you know I'm down. But I also know that life has better things to offer than what's on the street out there. Why are you so worried about me? Why shouldn't I be? Menace to Society, Andy, 1993, directed by Albert and Alan Hughes. It stars Tyron Turner, Lawrence Tate, uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, briefly. It's actually a fantastic cast. We're going to walk through it. It is the story of uh, this uh, a young street hustler and uh, his uh, attempts to uh, I- escape the ghetto uh, and the uh, the war zone that is his life day to day. Man, it was great watching this movie again. How did it hit you? Oh, absolutely the same. You know, it's funny. Um, I this is one of those movies that that came out at a time when there were a number of films kind of depicting this world. Uh, you know, Colors, New Jack City. Um, Boys in the Hood. And uh, I remember, I, I mean, I really enjoyed seeing Boys in the Hood. And then I saw this one, and this one just had so much a, of a darker tone. And really, uh, I mean, I, I think even the the Hughes brothers talked about how that one had a lot more hope to it. This one, they really wanted to just have that that grittiness, that um, that rough edge. And uh, just less of that hope and, you know, kind of just more of the world that they had seen in this environment. And um, and I always I, I don't know why, but I, I clicked with this version of that world um, more than The Boys in the Hood. And I, I still really like Boys in the Hood. I think it's an excellent, excellent film. But um, this film is there's just such a dark tone to it and it's vicious and it's brutal. But I think that they're also saying a lot about. Um, you know, how people in this environment grow up and, and you know, what are the options for them to find a way out? And so, I, I mean, I really liked it. I loved uh, connecting with it again. It just it's, it's a film that hasn't aged. I felt that it felt as raw and visceral as it did when I first saw it back uh, in, I can't remember if I saw this in the theater as soon as it came out uh, way back in the day on Laserdisc. <laughs> of course you did, Andy. Of course you did. <laughs> you you know it's funny Uh, you say it didn't age there were a couple of elements uh and and i will list them jada pinkett that actually did age uh sort of strangely for me when we talk about you know elements of the film that hold up uh just her anytime she was in the film i was i I felt like it was uh it, it was a little bit dated but I was amazed at how well the rest of the film held up for me, like how it didn't feel dated, how it was just sort of ageless, timeless. Uh, and, and I actually, I, I wouldn't say every time Jada Pinkett's on, on screen, um, I, I think you, the, her 
her costuming was <laughs> particularly dated, right? The That's giant what I was going to say. Baggy. I, did, I didn't think Jada was dated, but boy, were her outfits. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Her outfits with the, the giant sort of balloon jeans, the guest, like, giant jeans pegged at the ankle and the way, way, way oversized shirts. Yep. And uh, you know those are uh, that, that's 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 a little bit dated, and for some strange reason, and I was going to hold this for cinematography and editing, but for some strange reason, whenever we were in her house and her bedroom in particular, the way the colors worked, the there was something about it. It almost felt like it was shot on video, and it was it was just a little too crisp, and it was uh, and it, it looked like a set on Fresh Prince of Bel Air. That's I I don't know. I don't know why, but every time we went into her house, I, I ended up being sort of <laughs> torn torn from it, which I thought was really funny. Not in a negative way. Like, this wasn't a thing where I, I hated the film as a result of, of that. But it was it stuck out to me as, as kind of a little, just a little shiny piece. Well, it's funny that you say that because, I mean, even the Hughes brothers talking about this film talk about how, I mean, this was a film made on a low budget. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. you know, you know scrape in the barrel sort of low budget but it was still a low budget and uh, even they talk about looking at this film and oh man if I could do it again I'd go back and I'd tell the same story but I would fix all these technical issues that we had Um, they said that you know people commented about how they loved all the handheld camera work in there and they said well you know some of that we weren't intending to do handheld but we were just running out of time and that was really the only option that we had we had to just race in there and get them that way and, um, you know, I, but, you know, happy that it ended up working in and helping with their style. Um, but I think that they might agree with you on some of those points that, you know, there might be some scenes. I don't know if it's those ones in particular, but some scenes in the film that they wish that they could actually do better. I, you know, I think it's a it, this sort of technical kind of unevenness uh, actually, in this case, gives the film a, a rather unique character, and and it doesn't necessarily detract from it, but it's notable. And and I found myself like, you know, whenever they do the, uh, you know, moving around the subject in a circle, right? You, you know, putting the tripod on wheels and <laughs> moving around. I it takes me back to my first student films, like in in high school, like, hey, this is awesome. Let's put wheels on the camera and see what happens, you know. Um, and and so there was a there's a certain amount of of amateurishness that comes through that that um, I I find in this film ironically charming um, visually. It you know it's it's funny because it really feels like these guys. I mean, they were twenty when they made this movie. Uh, essentially, making these early movies was yeah, that's about right. This this yeah. music videos that they were doing. Um, and they talked about how Goodfellas and particularly Scorsese uh, were, were such influences on them. And uh, looking at uh, Scorsese's body of work and what he did in Goodfellas really kind of gave them a lot of ideas. And you can see that just all over the film. And it's just it's so obvious that they were they had that young mindset of let's let's just do some of the stuff that Scorsese is doing because it's it's cool and it's going to really give our film a, a life and everything and it did it was it's very visceral it's very energetic and i love that about the film and it doesn't bother me that it feels like they are kind of pulling from scorsese because i think they do it well and i yeah. think that's kind of the key is it, it feels like a, a, a successful homage rather than just a poor ripping off of somebody and right. like I, there's a fantastic scene where it's like the house is cut in half and you have the camera uh kind of dollying uh, left 
as you're following a character walking from room to room and you're seeing, uh, this is, I think, one of the, the party scenes uh, when I think it's when he ends up hooking up with, uh, with Ronnie. And, and the, the camera just kind of follows and you're cutting through the walls and everything going over to the bedroom. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really cool and it worked really well. And so I think that's kind of the, the difference is that these guys really had some, a, a good set of skills that they were able to bring to the table to make it their own. Yeah, no, I, I thought so too. And I, you know, the shot that I remember them doing that, it's the kind of reverse tracking shot where they're going out of the house after, uh, after he, he beats up on, uh, um, what's his name with the gun, uh, with the butt of the gun and they're dragging him out of the house and you get this really sort of violent dolly out toward the door and you see, you still see like to your point about the house being cut in half, you still see the framing elements in the walls that they're shooting through that normally would have the wiring and the, you know, insulation and stuff. It, it's a, it, puts you in a very unique place uh in in the spirit of this you feel like a like a voyeur uh in in some of the ways that i know they're shooting kind of gorilla uh and and by necessity and the result is it it puts us as you know as an audience in a in a very unique position i think a lot of the energy that they bring works well in context of this world that they're depicting right this this rough world in watts the the projects where all these guys are growing up and i mean we see just the difficult world that Kane has been in his whole life. And and I like that they actually give us a little bit of historical context, how, you know, there were these riots in the 60s, and those kind of um, led to the rise in the drugs here. And we see that played out by Samuel L. Jackson, his father, and just the awful stuff that, that he's witnessed as a young boy, and how he's grown up. And really, that's influenced his, it's, it's really colored his view of everything going on in this world. And you get this really interesting, um, you know, point of view with this character. And it's he's a kind of a tough character, uh, our protagonist, to connect with. Because, I mean, you know, he does a lot of awful things all throughout. He's not the sort of guy I'd probably want to go hang out with all the time. Um, but you get this interesting sense of their motivations and why they end up um, becoming the way they are. And this this ridiculous kind of vicious cycle of blame that they have and how, you know, one guy... Uh, does something to somebody else and so oh well they've got to do something to him and then his friends got to do something to them and the you know it's just this never ending battle it's never going to end and just the consequences and the way all of that unfolds i think that the energy that they brought to the filmmaking um here in telling this particular story um were perfectly um in tune with the vibe and the tone and the energy within this community how much did this remind you of city of god Oh, that's a great pairing. That is a really interesting pairing. Um, that I hadn't even actually thought of that, but that's just a really um, smart look at two films with really interesting filmmaking, giving you a, a full sense of the world that we're in. Totally my experience. I mean, I, it is, these are, and I feel like we could have a very similar conversation about the just cultural elements that we are thrust into the middle of the unexpected just brain-bashingly shocking violence that comes out of nowhere uh, and is taken so for granted. You know, I'm thinking specifically in this case about um, uh, O-Dog and, and you know, the guy who wanted to buy the drugs from him in exchange for the burgers, and he offers him, you know, all sorts of, you know, sex trades, and, and eventually O-Dog just loses it and grabs the burgers and puts the gun in his stomach and shoots him. And it's 
It is incredibly violent, and it happens incredibly quickly. And at the end of it, he says, anybody want a burger, right? It is just right, absolutely yeah. dismissed. And it was those sorts of elements about the the ease with which they deal in and truck in violence. I think it, it's a, a powerful parallel and uh, something that I, uh, wow, I, I mean, I, I just feel like Again, maybe this is this movie is more resonant for me after our conversation on Get Out, um, when I'm I'm specifically sort of put in the head and and getting a peek under the cover of the experience that these guys have to to see if I can take ownership of it in that way. I don't think I have the same kind of connection to it that I ended up having with Get Out, but it's it's pretty close. Yeah, that's uh, actually interesting that we had just talked about that, and now we're looking at this experience here. Um, it's. It is a shocking world that these guys live in where murder is just commonplace. I mean, even when O-Dog uh, shoots that uh, that crackhead in the belly and grabs his burgers, um, his two buddies at the end of the alley just look up like, oh, what is he doing now? Yeah, it's it's right. like they don't even look up like, damn, he just killed a man. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's it's a mentality that they've grown up with their entire lives. I mean, here is O-Dog is like this 15-year-old kid and just doesn't have any sense of anything. Like there's there's just complete lack of morals uh, growing up in his life. It's uh, yeah. it's just it's such an interesting place. What is it called? Why why can't I think of it? The the mechanic. What it's called when the narrator you, you it's not an unreliable narrator, but when the narrator, the voiceover narrator, is actually dead. I uh, think it's just a, you know uh, the dead I guess narrator. You could call it posthumous narration. That's oh I, I like that. an, that's a name for it. I like that. That's Andy. what I've heard, or just a dead narrator. Uh, I think those oh. are the two things I've heard. <laughs> Man, you sound so much smarter. Mm. Mm. Check out the big brain on Andy. I, uh, I that that's the uh, that, that's the mechanic here that we're dealing with. The way the voiceover is is in the voice of of uh, Kane and. Uh, we don't discover until the very end that that in fact this voiceover is taking place over the the few seconds as he's his life is flashing before his eyes at the at the at end of the film, um, and uh, and so that's his voice. What did you think of the mechanic and how they how they built this into the script? Does it does it work for you? Because we tend to be fairly critical of voiceovers. That's another thing that they talk about pulling from Scorsese is the narration, source music, the camera work, all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I, you know, I think the narration works pretty well. I think there are times in here where it's stronger than other times. Um, but the way that it builds in that finale, I think, is what ends up selling it for me. I, I think that his last few lines really give so much strength to it. And actually, I mean, from the beginning, I really enjoy the stuff that he's saying. I mean, you know, that first line that he has after after O-Dog um, shoots the... the um, the liquor store owner, you know, he's just like, uh, you know, went into the store just to get a beer, came out in an accessory to mur murder and armed robbery. It was funny yeah. like that here sometimes. You never know what was going to happen or when. Uh, after that, I knew it was going to be a long summer. It just, I mean, that was a perfect setup for the story. So I guess to that end, um, it uh, it mostly worked for me. I really like the concept of the posthumous narrator, and I think that the value of it really does come at the end, right? You can you feel at the end of the film whether or not they've earned it, um, you know, when you discover, when it, the big reveal that, in fact, this is a, a deathbed narration, that the last two hours that you've spent with these characters um, are effectively a flashback. 
uh, which I thought was uh, I, I thought worked really really well here in terms of the it, and it's smart. I mean, it's smart structuring, and I, I think shows a, a level of sophistication kind of beyond their years as filmmakers. For the most part, I think they they actually write a really solid script. I mean, these two guys paired with Tiger Williams, one of their yeah. uh, old high school friends, uh, did the story, and then Tiger Williams wrote the script. I think for the most part, it's actually really spot on and strong. There's only uh, like I think only one moment that I felt it got a little preachy, and that was when uh, Grandpa comes out and is just uh, what what is it that he says? Thou shalt not kill. No, he says, "Do you care if you live or die?" And he kind of looks back and he's like. You know, thinks for a bit. He's like, I don't know. Like that to me was just, I don't know. It, that that felt like hitting the nail on the head a little bit. With uh, what are we trying to say here? Um, but that's that's uh, funny that that's the one that got you. The one that got me was when we looped and saw uh, and saw um, Ronnie's son come out on the back porch and ask for a beer. Uh, essentially repeating the sequence that we saw when Kane was, um, you know, right. the son's age, you know, years and years prior and actually got the beer and, and got to play with the gun. And and um, and so, you know, that felt a little bit on the nose to me, like they're they're hammering home for us with this little scene on the stoop, just how different this kid's life is going to be as a result of the lessons that Kane learned. Uh, and, you know, I... I I, I got it. Yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. But it is interesting, and I, I'm very curious um, to know um, like what happens to young Anthony, the little five-year-old, Ronnie's five-year-old son with uh, Purnell. Um, does, uh, I mean, he, you know, he was interested in the world, right? He wanted to play with the gun. He, he likes using the vulgar language. He sneaks outside so that he can hang with all the, 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 the big people and everything. Um, and then he's right there in the middle of the gunfire at the very end. Um, is he going to grow up? Is, is Ronnie going to be able to kind of pull him out of that world in Atlanta and, and get him clean? Or having seen all that and been a part of it, has he, is it already too late for him? And is he going to, um, has he lost his chance at redemption? Um, it, I'm curious about that. I know people have gone up to the uh, Hughes brothers and the actors quite a bit wanting a sequel. What happened to Odog? What happened to these characters? And uh, I don't think they've ever seriously considered it, but it is one of those stories where it's like, you know, a lot of really compelling characters. And it's like, do they find a way through or not? Yeah, I think the other side of that argument, though, is, you know, what happens to Anthony? It's Kane. Well, right. Th- yeah, this is the yeah. repeating, you know, history repeats itself uh, story that there is, you know, insofar as the theme is redemption. It's also the fact that there is no redemption. Right. Well, you you still know. Right. Yeah. I mean, because yes and no. I mean, you see, uh, was it Sharif who uh, finds uh, finds the the nation of Islam. Right. And and he finds a way out. And Ronnie is not Cain's parents. Ronnie is really fighting for Anthony and she's already actively moving. And so I feel like there might be a hint of redemption, an opportunity for young Anthony um, if he can kind of get himself through the uh, all the counseling he's going to need after having gone through. <laughs> well, it. But, yeah, I mean, I, I get Ronnie, but doesn't Sharif end up gunned down in the lawn? Like, he does. I know. That's I know. not a way out. <laughs> so no. much for that. <laughs> right. He finds Islam. It ends up in a, a bloody pulp. Didn't save him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, right. No. Uh, well, I, I mean, to you, I, I actually, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel about a menace. I, I don't know. I, it, what? <laughs> what do you even call it? I, because of the way they write the title, I would want to call it Menace Three Society. I but know that doesn't that's... work. <laughs> 
Who says, who says menace to society too? That's weird. <laughs> Uh, but I don't know how I'd feel about that. That's one of those movies I don't think needs to be made. I I, I actually really like the kind of um, the the fact that that it, it is Kane that saves uh, Anthony and it almost sort of hands the narrative off to him uh, yeah. as as they start again. I I think that's a really beautiful moment as he um, you know as he's shot and huddles over Anthony to protect right, right. him. We've already talked about a little bit about the the struggles that the Hughes brothers uh, went through just to to shoot this thing. What do you think of their uh, of their work as directors at this point in their career? They're an interesting pair. Um, they kind of separate the uh, the uh, directing duties. One of them handles all the acting. One of them handles all of the uh, the technical side of things. Um, I can't remember which one is which. This is my problem with twins. Is I. I never remember which one is the one that does certain things or which one is which. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how they split it up. Um, and I, I think that it actually helps them quite a bit because they are able to really focus on much more specific things. And perhaps as young filmmakers, that might have really given them a leg up as far as not having to uh, had to just kind of focus so much on like the entirety of everything, but they were able to kind of limit it a little bit. And I think that might have helped them. I think that they're they're solid. I mean, we already talked about kind of how they pull these homages uh, from Scorsese, but I think that they were pretty ballsy. I mean, really, they took a story that I think a lot of people were like, you know, this is, this is pretty, uh, it's kind of potentially a dangerous film. This is something that um, you know, young people might see it and it might influence them the wrong way. Are people going to get it or are they going to just think that it's, uh, you know, a uh, you know, something that should never have been made? Um, even one of the two brothers talks about how, you know, if, if you hate blacks, this movie will make you hate them even more. And it's that, like, that sure sounds like an Alan Hughes circa 1993. Yeah, the, the, yeah, they they actually had to. It sounds like they had to go to um, some publicity training because they were rather vocal with some of their opinions, and uh, I think they had to be toned down a little bit to yeah. not offend people so readily. Well, <laughs> but, and and to to their credit, it worked because you know watching them in more contemporary interviews. Uh, scenarios they are really smooth like they're really good uh and you can you can feel just you know sort of how they because some filmmakers don't <laughs> mature like that you know they they aren't able to take direction themselves and and these guys are are quite quite good well and i'm curious this is going to be an interesting series to look at because these are filmmakers who um found a lot of success right out of the gate with this film and then a lot of people wanted them to make more gangster films or, or more films that were very much like this, uh, immediately pigeoning, pigeonholing them to, to continue working in this. And they actively pushed to avoid that. I mean, they did um, Dead Presidents, which is a little bit uh, kind of the, you know, the um, kind of the, the, not the gangster life so much, but the crime life that um, Lorenz Tate kind of falls into after um, serving in Vietnam. But then they kind of go off and do a documentary. They do From Hell, based on a comic book about Jack the Ripper, uh, Book of Eli. Uh, they have a very a varied career. And that's something that I think some of their fans uh, may not have wanted to see them do. And so they haven't had a big career. And 
Um, I, which really disappoints me because I feel like they had such great stuff right out of the gate and I really want to see them doing more, more, more. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's tough, I guess, when you, when you hit uh, your stride so early on. Let's do first shot, last shot. Yeah. The first shot, we start with some audio of Kane and O-Dog talking outside over black, and then we cut to the interior of a Korean liquor store as they enter to buy some forties. And the last shot, uh, this is after the big gunning, gunning down scene. We have this quick shot of, of uh, what we are led to believe, I think, is the last thing Kane saw uh, with uh, several guns firing at him uh, as, the, as his final line in the voiceover uh, wraps the film for us. It's tough. It really is. I mean, I think that it just uh, says a lot about this world. You know, we start with uh, a murder that O-Dog just... Uh, commits very uh, very much on a whim because he just doesn't like what this guy said to him um, and we end with uh, again consequences and actions and how this whole thing continues to unfold that how really kind of just their lifestyle led to this last moment and it's just it's a tragedy of the the never-ending cycle of violence that uh, these uh, these boys have grown up in it's um, it, it's interesting to me when you look at the re-release, the deluxe edition director's cut cover art uh, is uh, it, it's kind of split. And the bottom half of the frame, we have Kane and, and O-Dog uh, walking next to, just walking towards us, everything's fine. In the background, we have kind of off in the city skyline, we have the car that gunned them down. But the top half of the of the frame of the cover art is Kane's death sequence. Like it's the end of the film. So we almost have a first shot, last shot kind of, uh, you know, right in the cover art of the uh, of the film. And I think that's a that's kind of telling um, that, you know, at least at some level, the filmmakers are, are seeing that connection uh, just as just as we are. I mean, I, I find that really compelling. That's interesting. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those covers that I was looking at going, I, I mean, I guess it's a 20 some year old movie, but it's like God, they're kind of giving you the ending away right there on the cover. Yeah, right. But but if you uh, hadn't seen the movie, it would mean it would mean very little to you. Well, right? no, I mean, that's true. That's true. And it is hard to tell that that's Kane. Yeah, in that right. in that uh, photo. But, Which but is why still. I think it's more powerful, right, that they chose to go that way. Yeah. Um, you know, with that art, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I wonder how much you know input they the the Hughes brothers themselves actually had on that re-release. I don't I don't know. I mean, they obviously, you know, when they went back and did the director's cut, right? Uh, right but right. on that cover art, I wonder what they what they contributed to that. So anyway, I I think it's a a pretty powerful um, mix. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, casting was done by Tony Lee. Yeah, T- Tony Lee looks like this was his first uh, feature project. And then, uh, I mean, it looks like he did about 30 films, then retired or quit or something in about 2002 and hasn't done anything since. No credits uh, since then. So I don't know uh, what happened with old Tony. He got us Tyreen Turner playing Kane Lawson. He was a find. I really enjoyed watching Tyreen on screen, a really compelling uh, performance. And what's interesting is that uh, the Hughes brothers had seen him in an episode of America's Most Wanted and they just they they just felt like this guy had a lot of energy in one of the reenactments, and uh, 
they uh, they had their casting director track him down and brought him in and cast him, which is it's such an interesting way to find somebody. And it's, I mean, great for Tyreen. You know, I think that he's a really compelling actor. It's a tricky character to play because this is a protagonist who, you know, we don't really have a great save the cat moment. I mean, you know, just when you kind of feel like, oh, he's saving the cat here, it's like, oh, no, he's just, you know, not he's being a jerk again and it's it's a really uh, tricky um uh, way that that this character is but it's just the world that he's in so i i still find him really compelling even though he's a character that frustrates me Com- compelling and why is it then that we do see him as a sympathetic character arguably it's because everyone else around him is worse well that's a good point i mean yes everybody around him is worse I, I mean, I guess it's we're we're following him. We're in his head because we're getting his voiceover. So all of that obviously helps us kind of uh, get drawn to him a little bit. But also, I think that we get. I mean, he is a character that we get a sense of this other side. We see that uh, you know um, uh, his his mentor, I guess we'll call him Purnell, um, and is off in prison and and has left Ronnie and his son behind. And we see that Kane is actively trying to give Ronnie money. He is kind of, I, I don't want to say a father figure so much to young Anthony, but kind of. I mean, he kind of uh, tries to support him and, and teach him things, even if some of them are terrible. Um, but I, I think that that's I think there's a little something there is like we see another side to this character. We see this humanity to this guy. Plus, he's got the grandparents that are trying to trying to kind of support him and push him in the right direction. So we see those those chances that he has at finding a way out. And I think that's what we as the audience, the surrogate, latch onto um, with him and hope that he can kind of pull us through. Well, and, and we also see that, uh, again, in terms of kind of the film folding in on itself, the sequence when he goes to jail to to talk with Purnell and, and oh, actually yeah. admits, uh, you know, man, when I was young, you were like my dad. And that's an incredibly powerful moment in the film right. when we actually see that and then realize, well, yeah, okay, this this is a storyline that's repeating. This is Anthony. He's, you know, Anthony is Kane. Kane is Anthony, and they are they are in each other's paths, uh, and and you know makes it that that much more interesting. I think that is it's sequences like that when we see the vulnerability that he's able to portray on screen, um, in spite of his youth and inexperience as an actor, it, it is really natural and and palpable. And I think that's what anchors us to to his experience. Yep, absolutely. Jada Pinkett, we already mentioned, she's she's so young. Oh my gosh, <laughs> she, you know, just when you just when you ask yourself, you know, those times when you ask yourself, was Jada Pinkett ever that young? Yes, she was in this movie. She was that young. But what's funny is I see her in this, and I feel like, damn, she hasn't aged at all. <laughs> I mean, she looks so uh, so young still. I mean, it's just amazing how how good she looks and. She's a really interesting character here. I, you know, I know there were uh, you had some difficulties with her character and her wardrobe, but I still found no, no, her. No, 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 no. I, I want to. I got to be clear. It was not her character. It was, oh, it was just it was the her wardrobe. wardrobe and the way she was shot. Um, gotcha, but I, gotcha, gotcha. I really like her. I really, really, really like her. Yeah. No, she's great, and I, I think that um, it's, it's a really interesting side of the story. 
And I like that aspect here. And she's an actress that I just, I always enjoy to see, you know, whether it's um, this or Bamboozled or she was in one of the Scream movies that she, I think Scream 2, she's the one who gets killed right at the beginning. Um, she was in uh, The she's Matrix. In, uh, the Matrix. She's in Collateral. Brilliant film. Yeah, uh, yep, she's brilliant. in Madagascar films. Um, uh, you know, she's Andy, she's Andy, the, Andy, Girls Trip. Please. <laughs> I was going to say, she's in the new <laughs> Girls Trip movie with Lorenz Tate that's coming with out uh, Tate, later right. this year. <laughs> and I don't care what you say, the trailer did make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> she was uh, Trish Andrews in Doogie Hauser MD. I mean, come on. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, those were the days. Yeah, she was terrific. I, you know, I, I think she, uh, you know, she was the. Interestingly, she actually gets the the maternal character right, the character of sort of maternal wisdom, because the grandmother doesn't quite pull it off, uh, and so the the anchor to the future is in and and the heart and soul of of the experience of the film of of sort of authenticity and truth and getting out of the violence is in is in Jada Pinkett, and you can see, you know. That is is absolutely telegraphed in in her relationship with Purnell, the father of her child, and the the level of just sort of disdain that she treats him uh, with is is again it's thick on screen. Or yeah, or that he treats her with you know, the way that he dismissed her in the jail was yeah. horrible. Well, I think they kind of mutually dismissed each other. I mean, the way she looked at him was just daggers and slams the phone down. See, I, I thought I like that was because be he either. dismissed her. Uh, well, uh, maybe I just read it differently, but I thought it was just him. Uh, I, yeah, interesting. That's interesting. Mutual I want to look at that scene again now. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, Lorenz Tate came out of nowhere as Kevin O'Dog Anderson. Uh, this was his first film. He had um, his his first. I, I want to say it's his first. Uh, was it his first feature? His first lead. His first feature. He was because he had been. He had done a whole bunch of little television TV, yeah, right things, and he done. It was like Disney stuff, and and he came just sort of out of nowhere, um, and you know, hearing Alan Hughes talk about it, he said it was it was, you know, we we thought. There's no way this kid's going to be able to pull it off. But he came into the audition and and kneeled down and started playing dice and just brought it immediately, uh, uh, you know, in the first read. Uh, the way he t- he told it in this radio interview I was watching. Well, and I think that's exactly uh, even what Lorenz said. You know, he's very much this. I mean, he was 16 when he and he was he was it was like right between junior and senior year in high school. And uh, he was uh, ended up uh, like you said, he he went into the audition and the character O-Dog was really kind of written for like a big, big guy full of tats and all that. And he was totally not that. He's this <laughs> scrawny little guy who was only, you know, 15, 16 at the time. And um, and he's like, well, I'm going to have to just do what I can to to do something different. And so, yeah, that's kind of the character he came up with. And they said he walked in and he was that character. And they knew that they had him right away. So uh, fantastic. I mean, he brings so much energy. And um, he's, you know, he's a smart actor also, because even at the time, he knew that he didn't want to get uh, stuck with people thinking uh, that this is the sort of roles that he's going to play. And he went on to do something that was totally different right afterward, which is the Inkwell, which is uh, more of a kind of a rom-com. And uh, so I think that he's been one of those guys who's uh, kind of even as a young kid, uh, managing his career in ways that uh, that make sense. And I mean, a few years after this, he was in one of your favorite movies, The Postman. <laughs> I 
at you. <laughs> Ford Lincoln Mercury, baby. Uh, God. <laughs> I want to uh, see that movie again and talk about it with you. So we do have to plan that one of these days. <laughs> you better play your uh, play your uh, Stumper series well this year. Going <laughs> to narrow it down. <laughs> MC8 is uh, in the film as AWACS. Uh, yeah, MC8 uh, as AWACS. Um, he was an actual, I mean, he was a rapper. He was in the industry. And from what I understood, New Line Cinema kind of put it in the deal that in order to, um, in order to uh, you know, get the movie greenlit, that these guys needed to get a platinum rapper in one of the characters. Uh, in the film. And uh, so he's the one that they ended up casting. Although it sounded like they had MC Ren, who was going to play the character of AWAX first, uh, but then he ended up joining the Nation of Islam and pulled out of the film. So MC8 stepped in. And uh, he's an interesting character. I enjoy his presence on screen. It's interesting that they went with that character uh, because originally it was it, the platinum artist was going to be Tupac Shakur. Um, right. Which also, that ended up being a whole crazy thing. Um, yeah. Obviously, he didn't end up in the film. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was the the rotating uh, the rotating circle of of platinum MCs. Yeah, yeah. Tupac was going to be Sharif, the the Muslim, yeah. but uh, right. he got in a fight with uh, the directors uh, because they uh, apparently, per Tupac, he wanted a reason why Sharif would turn Muslim because he thought that would never happen, and they they said no, that's the way it is, and and. He got upset about that, and they just felt he was causing trouble on set and fired him. And later, he, you know, got into an altercation with them and, and sued them, or he's, they sued him. And this is this is crazy. So th- there is one interview on YouTube where Alan Hughes tells the whole story, and it's the only time he's ever told the whole story from his perspective. It's like uh-huh. a half hour on this radio show that they that they videoed and it's not long ago it's it's pretty recent and the the way the story goes uh tupac was was nuts on set and so the hughes brothers were telling everybody else on set don't laugh at tupac's jokes you're just egging him on he's crazy he's not he is not focused and he said uh, at one point i just had to tell him i said come with me tupac we got to talk and tupac got all up in his face and said what are you going to do what are you going to do what are you going to do and he says man you you got to go and so Tupac walked out and screamed, call my manager, call my manager, and left the set, right? Just just walked out on the set. So six months later, um, Shakur sees him on the street with his buddies and hits him in the back of the head, hits Alan Hughes in the back of the head. And Hughes said it felt like he'd been hit with a Nerf football. Uh, <laughs> And so he turns around, and Hughes is is uh, is a very big guy, right? I mean, he's he's you know he's he's a large guy, and Tupac was not a large guy. And so the way Hughes tells it, he picked up Tupac Shakur and had him over his head, and then threw him down on the hood of a car, and that's when he was jumped by Shakur's guys, and he was just pummeled in the street, just to a bloody pulp, the way he tells it. And the only thing that he got away with was uh, he had ripped off all of Shakur's uh, necklaces, all his chains around his neck, and he was holding them, and Shakur was screaming, get my chains, get my chains, because uh, Hughes was kind of in a in a mess on the on the street corner, uh, but he had this tight grip on these, <laughs> on these bloody chains. 
then this is the part where it gets crazy. So Tupac then goes on Yo! MTV Raps, and he starts talking about this whole experience about the Hughes Brothers and Menace to Society, and he says, so I beat him, I beat him up, I beat him up on the street. Nobody else knows this, nobody else was there, but I beat up Alan Hughes on the street. And that is what the police used to convict him and send him to jail. <laughs> he admitted it all on Yo! MTV Raps. So... Uh, but but to hear him talk about it now, um, Hughes, that is, he says, you know, this was this was a, the ultimate tragedy, and and in fact, um, uh, that the way he talks about Tupac Shakur is is with the utmost respect uh, as an artist and as a professional and uh, as an incredibly intelligent guy who also was, uh, you know, uh, emotional and um, so it, it was. It's a really interesting story to hear him tell it, and I just went in the rat hole over that story so and tupac i mean he's been in other films i mean, very and he was really good actor yeah yeah, yeah i loved so i loved him good. in uh uh what was the one that uh um uh, gridlocked yeah i, I really right. enjoyed gridlocked so uh yeah 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 and juice i mean juice actually came out right around the same time right uh it was yeah a little bit of a similar I think a few years vibe I think a few years later yeah 92 or a few a year before <laughs> Year before, a few years later, <laughs> you were saying <laughs> you and your time warp. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, who else you want to talk about? Anybody hot on your list before we get to the stunt casting? Uh, no one really, other than I just wanted to mention Glenn Plummer, who uh, plays Purnell in prison yeah. and uh, in the flashback to when we uh, meet Little Kane. But we get a, we get um, a few minutes of uh, of him on screen. Yeah, I mean, he's great. I really enjoy the character, especially the conversation uh, when he's in jail. But um, I didn't put two and two together until I was looking at his credits that he was the Jaguar owner in Speed. And, you know, <laughs> that character has always stuck out in my head. I think it's because his hair is so cool in that movie. And just the way that he ends up spinning out and crashing into the uh, the little water barrels there. But um, that was just so funny when I put two and two together. I'm like, oh, that's totally him. So... That was my moment. <laughs> did he get? Did he get Speed Two too? Wasn't he a cameo in Speed Two, or was that just? Uh... Now that you say that, he was. He was. I, he was Maurice I feel in like Speed he, Two. Yeah, I feel like he was. Yeah, I feel like he came back for that. Oh, that is so that is funny. So good. So uh, it, it wasn't. St- <laughs> yeah, he was stunt cast much later. That's not the stunt casting we're talking about here, though. We got Sam Jackson, Bill Duke, and Charles S. S. Dutton, all three in this film for what? Three minutes or less? Yeah, not much. I mean, it's it was a, a good call on their part to just get some recognizable faces in here. I mean, three brilliant actors who uh, just carry a lot of weight in their small scenes that just give us a good sense of things. Samuel L. Jackson is Kane's dad in his flashback. I mean, that's just a scary, violent uh, moment to see what, uh, what transpires in that particular uh, living room that night. And then Bill Duke just obviously has just such great presence. And when he's that detective trying to play games, those mind games with Kane, figuring out did he do it or not, um, that was great. And then Charles S. Dutton, I mean, he's, he is one of those guys who has that great presence of somebody who's trying to help you. And and as Sharif's uh, dad, I just thought that was, uh, I mean, he was great in that part. Uh, so, so let's talk about getting it made. Uh, Darren Scott produced the thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that uh, you know he 
he and the Hughes brothers worked well together um, creating this uh, this film. It was an interesting story where uh, you know they were showing it to a lot of people, and a lot of people were, I think, a little intimidated by the script and weren't quite so sure um, if it was something that they wanted to uh, jump in bed with. But I think that uh, he you know found the right people to do it, and um, even though. At the time, some people were kind of convinced that this wasn't really kind of a legitimate story, that it wasn't something that really was going to be kind of the the powerful film that it was. They kind of thought it was probably just more of a gangster film. But, you know, I think that that he as the producer um, found the way to to get it made that uh, worked really well. And uh, Lisa Rinsler was a cinematographer for this film. And I, we've already talked a little bit about the the camera, but overall... Um, it's, and, and this was, she's, you know, we talk about these guys as being sort of new to the business, but, you know, she was already a a 10 year kind of established, uh, you know, cinematographer at this point. Yeah. And had, had done and has done since a lot of stuff. I mean, she's just been a very busy woman. And has done a lot of really interesting films. And I think she did uh, a few more films with them, if I recall. Um, yeah, Dead Presidents. And uh, um, I, I think what she brings to the table here is um, a lot of energy. I mean, again, going back to what they did, pulling from Scorsese and, and filmmakers like that, I think that working with them, she ended up doing a lot of the same. Uh, the the scene that sticks out in my mind is again when Bill Duke is interrogating Kane, and the cameras one. You got that great dolly move, kind of spinning around the table, but also the the wall behind them, uh, one of the walls. You have those those like windows with bars on them, and it's like red light, like blood red light coming through, and you have silhouettes of people standing out there. It's like that is so. Um, not what the real world is going to look like. Um, but it was just a great depiction of the way that perhaps Kane was seeing the world at that particular moment. Um, I loved moments like that through yeah. through this film. Oh, I, I really did too. And, you know, I couldn't help but think of, um, and I, I know you love this movie, Graffiti Bridge, uh, the the last of, of Prince's feature films uh which it's is high what... on my list to watch <laughs> wait you haven't seen it i am shocked sir shocked uh you know that is that is the example of taking this sort of uh hyper real or sort of fantastical kind of sensate filmmaking and taking it way off the reservation you know this is uh it's it's similar to i would say uh batman and robin you know <laughs> like where you go just crazy with the neon lights and mr freeze and the the crazy roller skating you know uh roller skating laser dance that is that's an example of of this style of kind of lighting that goes bananas and and i hate it uh and i think menace to society is so subtle in in some of these touches that i really um i I really appreciate it yeah uh it was shot in some uh some crazy places yeah they pretty much wanted to i i think it was partly wanting to film it in the real world where this these sorts of stories took place and uh because of the budget not really having another option to film it in, in in anywhere else 
Um, but yeah, they pretty much shot it uh, in kind of this world in the projects. And it has the look, it has the feel, it has the energy, it has a lot of people from the neighborhood, a lot of uh, you know just the people who are actually there as the background actors uh, walking through the scenes, a lot of gangsters, a lot of um, people that you probably wouldn't want to mess with otherwise. Um, and actually, they ended up hiring some people in the neighborhoods uh, to kind of work as liaisons, to work as security, and uh, just kind of help things uh, run smooth. And it did. So, um, but I think that's a, a really interesting aspect to this story. I think, and I think people were probably nervous at first about it, but when they realized what story these filmmakers were telling, they actually, I think, appreciated it. At least the way they tell it. Yeah, no, I I think it's it again. It's it's that method of pulling back the covers and letting us sort of see what what it's like. Uh, you got to be there, and and it's interesting. I find that you know it, it moves in and out of feeling like it, a set uh, to feeling like my goodness, we're we're in the throes of it. I I think that's a they they do that very well, sort of weaving in and out of it. And this is you know one of my notes on editing was that it it ends up being kind of uneven stylistically that that it changes tone through through cutting and camera uh, kind of dramatically uh, depending on what we're what we're looking at. And uh, I think it works for me. I think it's uh, editing by Christopher Kofod. Christopher did a great job with the editing here. I I, I agree. There's the tone does change throughout the film. Um, but it's interesting because we get a lot of dips to black throughout as if we're going from one sequence to the next. And I think it's almost like chapter breaks where we get kind of a little, you know, okay, now that's happened. We're going to pause for a sec. We're going to jump into this now. And I think that allows for those tonal shifts, right? Yeah, totally. Right. At least it seemed that way to me. So. Yeah, no. I, and I think that's what I mean by it. It, it just, it works for me. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like in some cases, maybe in a weaker film, it would strike me. Um, sideways but here it, it you know really works well and again the working with young filmmakers who are trying stuff um, even Christopher and the sound team they uh, did fun, some fun stuff with the sound mixing you know throwing in like when the when the lights are changing from green to yellow to red you get like some gun sounds and uh, you get train sounds with traffic and there's some interesting uh, choices that they made just to amp things up and and uh, I I found it all of these different elements made for a very energetic film, including the music. Uh, Quincy, Quincy Jones III uh, did the music. And um, again, going back to Scorsese, they pulled a lot of source music, but they did have some actual score in here. And everything works. It all has a great feel and helps drive this world. One of the things I like so much about the music is just how well integrated it is to the characters, right? They sing the songs so often, you know, they they like rap along with the music. They're, they're, it's really integrated into the tapestry of the narrative. And I, I really like that. I found myself... Uh, kind of musing on that more often than not. I, I, I have to jump back to music again and say Quincy Jones the uh, third in the credits he goes by QD three, <laughs> which I think is is such a strange thing to go by. But I guess his name is Quincy Delight Jones the third. And so I guess that's where he gets the QD3 from. But this is something that I never knew about his uh his father, Quincy Jones, is that he um this son, Quincy Delight Jones III, was born in London. Um, Quincy Jones was married to Swedish model Ulla Andersson. And, um, and he, this Quincy QD3 grew up in Sweden. And I just I didn't even know that Quincy Jones, uh, one, married a Swedish model or two, lived in Sweden. I thought that was like, oh, I, I never knew those things. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, such a strange little 
thing to learn. Uh, how to do an award season. This was one of those small films that didn't uh, strike at the Oscars, but it certainly struck the Independent Spirit Awards. It was nominated for Best First Feature. Um, Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi ended up uh, kind of walking away with that one because it was such an interesting experiment. Um, uh, Tareen Turner was nominated for Best Male uh, Lead, but lost to Jeff Bridges in American Heart. And Lisa Rinsler uh, did win an award for Best Cinematography, so kudos to her. Also, at the MTV Movie Awards, they ended up winning the Best Movie, which is kind of People's Choice Awards sort of thing. Um, they, it, the nominees, the other nominees were Jurassic Park, Philadelphia, Schindler's List, and The Fugitive. So some huge, huge players. And this is the film that ended up walking away with Best Movie of the Year. I think that says a lot for the time and what people were wanting to see and the energy that this had. I think it just captured that MTV audience. The, uh, did the awards uh, help it uh, when it came to the numbers? Yeah, the Hughes brothers, uh, they burst onto the scene with this debut, proving they had the skills to make more. This movie only cost $3.5 million, or about $5.8 million in today's dollars. The movie was re- released wide May 28, 1993, opposite Cliffhanger, Happily Ever After, Made in America, and everyone's favorite, Super Mario Brothers. Hi, Mario! Certainly the smaller... F- <laughs> <laughs> Certainly the small film of the bunch, even with a limited open release, the movie did find an audience and ended up grossing $27.9 million at the domestic box office, or about $46.6 million today. All told, the movie ended up making an adjusted profit per finished minute of $420,000. Great That's... job for this talented duo and a solid start to their feature film careers. Uh, I think we should rank it, Andy. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. Uh, you could even just swipe right over to your show notes and tap on the flick chart. Just tap on it. It'll take you right over to this very film so you can add it to your flick chart list. And uh, and let's see how it does. I'm feeling I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good, but yeah. it all hinges on this first, the very first ranking. It's hard. It's <laughs> we've got Menace to Society <laughs> or Mad Max. George Miller's 1979 oh. start to the series. This is not hard for me. I am all menace to society on this one. If, if yeah, if it were Road Warrior, I would pick yes, that. But then it Mad would be Max, hard. I'm yeah, I'm picking menace to society. As as a thought experiment, if it were Joe versus the volcano, I would pick menace to society. I, I would pick Joe versus the volcano. Sorry, <laughs> Wait, sorry I have I you on record. That, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you confused me, Bill Duke. Damn you! <laughs> Warn me down. You messed up there. You did. You messed up. All right. So menace to society or trading places. Menace to Society, please. Menace to Society, indeed. Menace to Society or 101 Dalmatians. Aw, that was such a sweet film. It is. I'm going to say Menace to Society, though. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say Menace to Society. Menace to Society or Children of Men. Definitely Children of Men for me. Yeah, uh, okay. Wow, I thought I was going to have to fight you on that one. Yeah, I kind of thought you would, too, but I, I you know... If you, you recall, you changed with that. Yeah, I, I changed I, dramatically with that. Yes, indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. Menace to Society or Snowpiercer. Um, I'm saying Snowpiercer. You are? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's I'm on the fence uh, on that one, but there's, there's something about there's something about that movie. Tilda Swinton, man. Tilda Swinton, I think, is actually the thing about that movie. She's so weird. She's, she's brilliant. <laughs> so brilliant in that movie. Okay, Menace to Society or Time Bandits. I haven't seen that in a while. I'm going with Time Bandits. And that probably is because of my connection to it uh, as a child. 
Um, I really still connect with that film. But per our discussion last week, if I were to just watch these two films for the very first time, I may be, go with Menace to Society. See, I, I feel like my connection with Time Bandits is, while strong, is is not as uh, strong uh, as as maybe yours is. So I, I think I'm Menace to Society on this one. Well, then let's do it. All right, here we go. Okay. One, one two, two, three, rock. You crush That's me. Good. That's good. Uh, Menace to Society or Stand By Me? <laughs> Stand By Me. Stand by me. Yes, definitely. Menace to society or delicatessen. Delicatessen. Delicatessen, indeed. Well, that puts Menace to Society kicking off our Hughes Brothers series at 31 on our flick chart. Oh, I like that. That is a fantastic spot. I am thrilled that the Hughes Brothers, uh, right out of the gate, uh, broke in so high on our charts. Me too. Kudos. Yes. Me too. Good movie. What's this uh, for you, uh, your letterbox ranking? Letterbox.com slash the next reel. This film, you know, I give it four stars. I, I feel like I want to give it a little more, but I there were a few things with it uh, that I just had a difficulty connecting with, but I, I, I think four stars is pretty strong for me. Do they, do they, can you land on quarter stars? Because I'm a four and a half stars on this movie. I I can do uh, I can do a quarter if I if it's a quarter I just bump it up so then I'll, I'll just round so it up it's a to four and a half quarter. stars four and a half yeah it'll be four and a half yeah let's do that okay we'll do that then. I really enjoyed this movie I had a, a a great time this movie I I this is one of those examples where I was worried watching it because it's been a while since I've seen it and I thought oh no this is going to be one of those things where it's going to come off uh you know it's it's just not going to it, it's not going to be what I remember, and in this case, it was exactly what I remember. And I, it, you know, the feelings uh, that I got to experience again were so familiar uh, of of just kind of reacting to this movie. And now I have the exact same experience because since we did City of God uh, on this show, I I teach it now in in one of my classes, and I have this same experience every time I watch that movie now too. Uh, it, they're, they're just such a gift. At, at being able to kind of pull back the curtain on this other world that I am so ill-experienced. So I, I really am thankful for this film. I love that we got it on the list, and I'm really happy with where it landed. You know, it's funny. Um, we're going to be skipping their next film, Dead Presidents, and their documentary they did after that, American uh, Pimp. We're going to be jumping to their, uh, their adaptation of the graphic novel from Hell, um, but after that, I mean, these guys have done so few films. They did The Book of Eli, which we're also going to talk about. And then they kind of, I don't know what's gone on with the Hughes brothers, but according to Albert, the brothers love each other, but are also, quote, kind of in a weird dance right now. Um, I don't know what's gone on, but they have done some directing jobs solo. Alan, in 2013, did Broken City with uh, Mark Wahlberg and Russell Crowe. I don't recall that doing very well. And then right now, Albert is trying to finish up his huge epic uh, film, The Salutrian, which is a historic drama with Cody Smith McPhee. That is, I think he's a, kind of a caveman. It's a caveman story. Yeah. yeah. And um, but yeah, they've kind of uh, taken their own separate paths, and I, I think one of them is actually living in uh, Czechoslovakia now or something. So it's I, I really want to know. The, the story with these two guys and, and kind of what's been going on uh, behind the scenes. So, I yeah no I'm I, I would love them to get out of that weird place because they need to do more movies together. I think there's there's still stories to be told. 
what a cool, Absolutely. cool experience this was. Okay, so you already said it. Next week we're doing uh, we're doing. You said it, and then I forgot it. From hell, we're doing from hell. Yeah, from hell next week. Yeah, talk about it. That's a different experience. And uh, and then uh, so between now and then, uh, I will be in bed. I'm going to take O Dog up on that burger. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Do you know what I love about Amazon? Is, What's is that? The the depth that reviewers will go to to leave such rich and ins- insightful commentary on their experience with the film. Very true. Do you agree? Very true. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'll 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 go first. Uh, mine is is from uh, Morgan. Writes uh, with a one star that uh, uh, that he hated it, uh, and his comment is. I had a nightmare. I got hit by a drive-by. I got rid of the movie. I only saw it once. (laughs) I mean, you don't want to have that kind of a nightmare based on this movie. I actually am not entirely sure that the two are related. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Those should be two separate paragraphs. I had a nightmare. I got hit by a drive-by. Oh, in other news, I got rid of this movie. (laughs) Right. Right. Oh, well, I've got a one star also by Lisa, who clearly, uh, I don't know if she was falling asleep while she was writing or just kind of lost interest in the <laughs> whole process, but she it's like she just stopped mid-word. Uh, Lisa's one star review says, would like my money back was too violent. <laughs> Couldn't even finish spelling violent. It's or, like she just gave up. <laughs> or maybe she misspelled violin, Andy. You don't know. We'll oh, right. never it was know. Too violin. It was we'll too violin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.